0: If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our spring fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardener'sworldfair.com. See you there.
1: This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
1: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating
0: McDonald's. Hello, welcome to Growing Greener. I'm Ara Anderson, and this is my podcast series for Gardeners World magazine, where I'm inviting experts to share their knowledge about how we can all become sustainable gardeners. Through a blend of science-based facts, research, experience, and above all passion, you'll discover how your actions in the garden will make a real difference to the planet. Diversity is a hot topic for all of us right now, as we figure out how to create a more diverse society for 21st century living. My guest today has researched, studied and can prove diversity holds the key to how we should garden in the future, because diversity lies at the heart of the healthiest plant communities. Professor Nigel Dunnett has been studying this for decades and is convinced that it's not just about us working with nature rather than against it, but that observation is key. Hi, Nigel, and welcome to Growing Greener. Hi, Eric. Really good to speak to you. So I know that since a boy, you've had a fascination with the natural world, so much so that you've made it your life's work um, to learn as much as you can about plants and in particular, plant communities, um, how they thrive in nature and how we can take that research and apply it to practical planting designs. So I kind of really want to understand what is it about plant communities that us gardeners should know about? Well, you're you're
1: right, Aaron. I've been really, really lucky um, to have been interested in plants and nature for as long as I can remember. Uh, yeah, like you say, from a small boy, I mean really small, kind of really early memories. And it's not just plants and nature. I've been really interested in gardens and making gardens and being in gardens. Again, I was lucky. My mother and father were keen gardeners, so they kind of got me into it and... um the, the magic started really from very early age. I think when they showed me how to take a cutting and you know the the magic of a of a of new roots forming on a twig. That really that really switched me on. So I kind of got into gardens and gardening and did it, learned about it from, from a very young age. But also we were lucky enough to live in the countryside and I explored the the woodlands and the meadows and the hedgerows as I was growing up and I guess I started to realise that the things I saw in nature were so much more exciting and so much more beautiful and so much more dynamic than I ever saw in gardens at the time, and this is in the 1970s. Um, And so I started to think, you know, what is it about nature and the way plants grow in the wild that makes it special? And why don't I see that in gardens? And how could we take some of those ideas from nature and use them in the garden? And I think there are there are several things that, that really struck me. You know, I've thought about it a lot, of course. I think one of the, the main things, when you see a plant growing in nature, it's there because it has survived. It's totally and completely suited to the site. It's only there because it's survived all the ravages of pests and diseases and weather and climate. You know, it's got through all that. It's totally suited to the exact conditions that it's in. And that is so different to a garden setting, isn't it? Where so often horticulturally we have a prize plant or something we want to grow, and we do everything we possibly can to change the conditions or make the soil correct. You know, it's almost a challenge to grow plants that are not suitable for where we are. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that's kind of almost the definition of a lot of gardening and horticulture in the past. So this suited suitability, fitness to site, is a crucial thing. But then the other thing, I think, is that, as you said, it's a plant community. It's a it's an association. It's a collection of different plants and animals, of course, living together. And it, as in any sort of society that works, there's a sense of give and take. There's a sense that, you know, one plant or one element feeds off another. It's a little bit like we as humans. If we're going to get along, we have to interact with each other. And I think the most exciting interactions is where you've got a diversity of people rather than every thing, single thing the same. And that's, that's really the way I think of a plant community. It's a collection of different plant species or individuals that are each doing different things or exploiting different resources, coming up at different times, maybe supporting different insects and animals. Um, that really makes the sum so much bigger than the whole. So, I think that's the other lesson. It's about diversity. It's about community and moving away from you know just having a low diversity, a small number of different plant species and and trying to get plants to to coexist together because I would just say when you do that, it leads on to one of the biggest things about sustainability. I think that I think nothing can ever be self sustaining, but you know a plant community works naturally without needing a lot of input from from people you know it kind of exists and it has existed for millions of years um without our input um and i think you know that's another real lesson for us to take from from nature
0: no i mean that is i mean i think there's so many different things you've said in there that that it is a, as gardeners is a bit challenging because you're right you know we have this thing that there that there has to be this kind of taming nature feel about things and and keeping on top of things and and how many times i mean i I've, I've done it i'm i'm I, you know certainly when i was learning about gardening you go down the garden center and you see a plant that you like you know i like that plant and i want to get it back home um and not always maybe thinking about what its friends might like or whether it's the actual uh right plant for that area so and and i think also as well what you've really touched on for me is about observation. Um, it's obviously from a child you've been observing plants. Do you think that's something that that you know we kind of need to do more as gardeners, sort of more observation and less doing, as such? I, I do think so. Um, you know, I'm a professor, kind of, <laughs> you
1: know, sort of highly advanced academic in that way. But I think um, you know, don't tell anybody else this, but I think a lot of <laughs> uh, of what I do in gardens, I've taught myself. Um, just by looking and learning and trying things out. And um, we can get so much from books and watching TV programs and websites, of course. That's often where we get our inspiration from. But I think there's nothing to be just watching and looking and seeing how plants grow together in a more untamed space. And you don't need to travel to the other side of the world to see wonderful exotic plants in some incredible location you don't need to go to pristine nature reserves or wonderful places in the countryside you know if you live in the middle of the city there are so many wild places and so many places where plants come up and survive in that way i just talked about whether it's between cracks in paving stones or in neglected corners or a bit of the garden that's not manicured or patch in the park or a bit of wasteland so-called there's so many opportunities just to see how plants grow and i think In particular, not in a one-off way, not just to see it, you know, in the middle of February, but to see it the middle of February, the middle of March, the middle of April, just to see how it changes throughout the year and from year to year to year. And I think, to me, that that observation of change um, and how plants coexist with each other in this very dynamic way has been the most exciting thing and the thing I've tried to apply the most, really,
0: Okay so that's um so yeah we definitely need to 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 keep looking and i and i agree that obviously february this year is actually very different to february of last year or next year even because everything's in, in so much flux but to say you know we we've, we've got people i'm sure that are listening that are new gardeners and this notion of, of the plant community and and thriving together are there sort of in your in your work things that we need to look out for? So, for example, if we really like grasses, are they, are they more dominant than, say, certain other species or is that only in certain situations? Just so that we can understand how, if there's any sort of, um, not rules, but if there's any things to look out about with these communities.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to make rules, isn't it? Because you can't say all grasses are the same, just like people. Um, so, again, it's kind of getting to know the individual plants and what you want i think um, there are there are some rules though and i think number one is covering the ground covering the space and thankfully this is changing but you know so much gardening and horticulture certainly when i was growing up was all about you still see it everywhere um maintaining clean and tidy bare soil between the plants and you're almost um showing off the individual plant Um, rather than this this mix of plants that covers the space and when we cover the ground that helps us because it reduces the amount of unwanted plants coming in or weeds let's say so that's that's part of it i think layering so not just having a two-dimensional area of planting that's let's say just ground cover plants or just shrubs it's about not just covering the whole of the ground surface, but almost three-dimensionally filling the space so that you have um, perennials, herbaceous plants on the ground, more dynamic ones like bulbs and annuals, if you want. Uh, but then you have shrubs. And then if you have space, you have, I think we all have space in a way, uh, have a tree, whether it's a really small one or a bigger one. So you're building up those layers. So it's three-dimensional thinking in a way. Um, and then within that to to really not have simplicity to have a diversity of plants that let's say will flower from early spring right the way through till autumn so you have always some sort of pollinator support Um, and diversity is such an important thing and maybe we can talk about this some more in terms of creating creating um, gardens and landscapes that are strong and tough and robust um in the face of the challenges that we are all living through in terms of climate and other challenges that um if we have a diversity of plants and let's say we have an extreme drought year or freezing winter or whatever and some plants don't survive then others can come through if if we're having a very simple garden or landscape and everything is kind of simple and the same and we have a real drought summer we either Face all our plants dying, and we have to do all sorts of things to keep them going. So, you know, having a more diverse, a more mixed, a slightly more complex way of looking at a garden not only helps us, I think, in looking after it, and helps the wider environment, but it makes it much more robust and resilient to, to changes and stresses that we are know we're going to be living through into the future.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I mean, I think it's. I mean, I'm sure that you get asked. I certainly do. There is a, often a you know I want a I want a garden that's got interest all year round but I want it to be low maintenance and and actually on some levels that's the, that's a kind of for me is always like a really difficult one um to kind of deliver upon but that said and listening to what you're saying that that is kind of the way forward is to make sure that the that year round interest means by definition there's a mixed border is is that, that's what you're saying really isn't it
1: that's right I mean it's um it's a concept that sort of has gone out the window, you know, until recently, the idea of a mixed border, um, where you are mixing shrubs and perennials and trees together. Um, You know, certainly in garden design circles and and everywhere you look, and it's been all about perennials, 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 herbaceous plants. Um, And that was partly a response to shrub, shrubberies and heather gardens that dominated everything before that. And people said, You know, we just can't stand more of these boring shrubs. Let's have these more sparkly, dynamic perennials. But in a way, when you start to focus just on herbaceous plants and nothing else, it's almost the same problem. So I think more and more, we're moving towards mixing things up. So we have the woody plants, which give that framework throughout the year. And then you have seasonal highlights through all sorts of wonderful plants that can come up and and give you that joy. Um, within that that woody plant framework,
0: yeah, and I think there is, you know, as, as uh, trends and fashions come in, as you, as you say, and and they're definitely when I uh, started to do um, garden design, you know it wasn't really much about shrubs at that point. You know, now, you know, I'm more confident about bringing more shrubs into borders because it wasn't, it was really about the sparkle. Which, you know, and let's face it, I love a bit of sparkle, but, um, but you know, it is about getting that mix, I guess. Um, one thing just sort of leading on from the diversity, because I think that's really um, important. And the reason, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that we need these diverse um, planting uh, borders is to support, biodiversity. Now, I'm wanna I'm bring it saying it in that way. I what I'd like you to be able to sort of define biodiversity because I think that as that over the last few years, biodiversity, when we've talked about it in garden terms, sometimes has kind of led us to believe that it's about bees and pollinators. And it's so much more than that, isn't it? It's one of these
1: terms that's really, really difficult because biodiversity, I guess, means just a variety of living things. That you have in an area and to some extent that's kind of a meaningless term because you know it doesn't talk about quality it just talks about quantity um and you're quite right are i think it means different things to different people so in my world where um doing quite a lot of large-scale plantings in public places as well as gardens um and a lot of work on buildings on green roofs and you know in places that you would normally think would be difficult Biodiversity has come to be associated with very rare things so that when you create something for biodiversity, you are attracting and supporting a really rare spider or a really rare beetle. And it's almost about that individual species. Um, And as you say, it could be about pollinators or it could be about insects. Um, In some ways, I think um, we should be thinking about biodiversity first as being about common things. You know, things that we can all attract, things that we know are going to be fairly easy to, to come into our gardens and landscapes, because very often you see these things, but then there's a whole range of other things coming behind that are maybe not so visible. Things are rare and scarce because they're very specialist often, and you have to do very special things for them. So I think first and foremost, when we make gardens for ourselves or if we're doing it for other people... We should really be trying to encourage as much common wildlife as we possibly can, and then go on, if we can, to provide particular plants for food sources for particular insects or provide nesting habitats, let's say, for particular bird species. But it's almost the opposite to, I think, what a lot of ecologists think about biodiversity. But I think in gardens, we should be encouraging as much as possible of the really common things, first and foremost, because they're often the ones that give us the most joy because we know what they are we recognize them um and and it is quite easy to do that and then you can start to to go for the the, the rarer things. so biodiversity i think is a tricky term because it's got so many different meanings and really we're talking about nature and doing the best we can for nature as well as for ourselves in in the gardens and places that we make and look after
0: yeah, no, I'm glad that we've touched on that because I know that for some people that is a, a term that gets a, a little bit confused, and and I think you're right that the it does have different meanings. But what I do like what you've said is the fact that we those plants that we're bringing into the garden are not just for our visual appeal. Um, that they are they are also serving a job because I always think of it as. Then we're, we're not the, the only people using the garden. In fact, actually, most of the time we're not in the garden. There's all the other life is in there a lot more than us. So it only feels right, doesn't it, to give them the the habitat and the plants that they that they need, whether it's insects, animals, birds.
1: Exactly. I I've changed my thinking on this quite a bit recently. Um... Because in the sort of design world, when we talk about users of a garden or a landscape, it's about the people, as you say. Who are the users of this space? Whereas in reality, the, the users is everything that will come in and we can encourage to live their lives in that space. And that, I think, often means that some of the value judgments we put on what's good and what's bad have to change a little bit. Um, certainly in my own garden... You know, I start to think, you know, if a pri you know, if a wonderful plant gets nibbled off, as I've had this past year, or, you know, a lovely well, for example, um this, this this last spring, I don't know if it will happen this coming spring, but I planted loads of tulips in my garden to have a wonderful display. And they survived, they got through. Um, but then squirrels came in. And they didn't take the bulbs. They just nipped off all the flower buds just as they were coming into flower. And I'd find piles of petals all over the place. And, you know, partly that's infuriating. But then partly it's part of this different way of thinking because the squirrel, whatever we think of a squirrel, is a user. And, you know, it's a joyful, beautiful thing, I think, to see squirrels running around, using the garden in the way that they do. And so I, I've come to think differently about damage and pests and diseases um, because I think we are trying to work with a whole web of life. It's a whole ecosystem. And who are we to say something is good and something is bad? You know, you're welcome, you're not welcome. Um, uh, and I think certainly where I've gone and the way a lot of people are going is within the garden if something doesn't survive if it gets eaten or you know chomped away by something well i just don't grow it you know i i I end up growing things that i know will survive that 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 live without too much input rather than as we said before going to all this effort to preserve plants which are just not going to survive on their own anyway for whatever reason
0: yeah and I always had this thing, especially with slugs and snails, when, you know, I get asked that all the time, you know, what are the anti-slug um, plants, are it? And you sort of say, I say find myself saying to clients, it's not really fair, is it, to put out dinner and then say, you know, imagine somebody kind of invited you around for dinner, put out a beautiful spread and then said, ah, oh, you can't touch that. <laughs> and that's what, we're, that's what we're doing in the garden, isn't it? It's the same thing
1: exactly and i think that starts to lead on i mean slugs and snails is quite a nice example of course you know but there, there, there are limits but um it comes down to tidiness as well and you know um my own garden at the moment and we're talking in sort of late winter early spring uh, i haven't really cut anything back there's a lot of dead material lying all over the soil and um I cut things back the grasses and perennials later and later and later each year. In fact, I've started cutting them half back and leaving some stems and stalks lying standing up right the way through into into the middle of spring and leaving a lot of the dead material on the ground because that is supporting life and ecosystem in itself and those dead stems are providing shelter for things which might otherwise not survive over the winter. So I think when you start to think differently about everything else that's living in your garden, it almost automatically starts to encourage you to do things a little bit differently than maybe in the past.
0: And I think the the visual aspect is the bit within us that has to slightly change. I've got to be honest. I think that helps helps us. Of course, we want visual pleasure from gardens. Don't get me wrong. It, we can see it. It makes us feel good. But I'm I'm going to share that moment when I I was very fortunate um, a couple of good couple of years ago now uh, to have come to your garden. And I remember getting there, and it was dusk, and so actually I couldn't be taken in by every last visual detail. Do you remember we kind of Going going up the, the 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 stairs, but you know what did really stand out for me was how the garden felt. It felt right. I couldn't see everything, but the actual feeling felt right. There was a, an, an ease about the garden, and I think maybe that's also part of um, of how when we think about putting plants plants and planting combinations together, how do they feel? That goes back to that community that you were saying, doesn't it? You know, how, how plants may sit together. And um, so that, that was something that was really stood with me um, from that visit that, that very, <laughs> that very <laughs> late <laughs> afternoon trying to get up the motorway. I think it wasn't late
1: afternoon, it was kind of uh, must have been late evening because yeah. it was getting really dark.
0: Yeah, um, it definitely was.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. And um, one thing I try and do in my own garden and in gardens that I make is to create what, you know, it's a bit of an overused word, I think, but to create an immersive experience with within the planting and the garden. And I think that has all sorts of benefits. I think, first and foremost, it is the emotional element. You feel connected and you feel part of it. Because I do think, I don't know what you think, Aaron, I think a lot of our experience of more traditional gardens, I call it quite low energy because, for example a lawn surrounded by flower beds or a terrace or patio with flower beds or whatever our experience of plants in the garden is quite a passive one you stand back from the lawn you look at them you know you're kind of an observer and you like it or you don't it might give you lots of pleasure but you know you stand back you're looking at it i i kind of like that that front path you come up through in my own garden i think it might have been the end of the summer early autumn when you came and you almost have to push your way through the plants. You know, you are surrounded by them. Um, And I think that's a much more high energy experience because it's not just what you look at, it's what you touch and what you feel and what you can smell and you see everything blowing around, you see all the other life in that. And I think that that sense of energy has a direct effect on the emotions you feel as well. So I do think um, that that's a really important factor. In fact, one of my things, I think, and it's slightly disagreeing perhaps with what you were saying, but not really, um, that a lot of people in the sustainable and ecological world, in term, when we think about gardens and landscapes, almost wish people were not part of the story, that, you know, people get in the way. And, um, you know, I hear so often... Uh, let's say for a piece of ecological garden wild garden or eco landscape doesn't really matter what it looks like so long as it's working so long as it's doing the job for for biodiversity or for whatever you know people people can be educated about it people can you know we can do lots of interpretation um and i think that that's true to some extent but but i think that i've always taken a people first approach to these ideas that It has to work for people as well. It has to be something that people really want, that that I want, other people want. And I think it has to be stronger than that. You know, if we we want to really make a strong message and to really make a change, make a difference, it has to be something that, that people love, that people want more of. People want to say, not just in my own garden, but next door's garden or down the road or in the park or in the schoolyard or on the street. This is what I want to see. So I think, you know, we have to push that it's not just for people, that, that this is a multiplicity of different benefits and different things we want to get out of all of this. But at the same time, I would just love to see all the ideas that we're talking about go mainstream to be almost the default. You know, it's what happens naturally. And therefore, it really just have to work for us as well as for the wider environment. And, um I think in some ways why why it isn't the default, why it isn't the mainstream is because the sheer beauty and the sheer stories behind all of this are not told strongly enough. Um, sometimes you can feel almost not a punishment, but almost you have to go through a little bit of hurt to achieve, you know, real environmental benefit. Um, and, and that's a bit off-putting, isn't it? I, I think, you know, if we can make this a pleasurable thing, as well as a meaningful thing then then that's how we start to move things forward
0: well i know for sure you know that that you're you're a huge advocate you know not just not just sort of a scholarly uh, and, and research papers you know that you demonstrate your research in so many different ways you know the barbican center in the in central london a very brutalist urban building that you have taken um, this whole ethos of plant community and melding it in with how people interact with it, you know the Olympic Park, um, those people that saw it at, at 2012 when obviously all the meadow work that you did with James Hitchmo. and and you know the really big one at in Sheffield Greater Green, um, trying to show people that your walk to work, your walk around that city as you said before, can be immersive. If anybody hasn't seen that yet, you can Google it and go and have a look and certainly if you can get to Sheffield, we'll go and experience it. And I think what you're saying, um, really, Nigel, is the fact that, you know, the reason why people are a part of this is because people are part of nature. And I think that's the thing. We we kind of keep divorcing ourselves, man made, over there, the nature fix it somewhere else. It's really intrinsic. So that that's that I think is like you say, that's where we've got to get to, isn't it? Believing and knowing we are part of that natural cycle.
1: Exactly. It's a different way of thinking about these things, that nature is not something over there or something different to us. We are part of that whole process. That that's the whole basis of the whole idea about bio biophilia, isn't it? You know, that that where you know the more we can surround ourselves by real nature or things that remind us of nature, the more healthy, both in body and in mind we are. And it's kind of not surprising, is it? Because if you think about it, as people, you know, talking to each other like this in 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 sort of this modern era, it's only a few thousand years old that we've been kind of even living together in kind of built settlements. Um, I don't know how long we've been around as a species of people. We are animals, millions of years or whatever. Um, the amount of time we've actually living in towns and cities is just like a grain of sand a drop in the ocean compared to our whole evolution as people and living in these urban environments or in very built-up environments is totally unnatural to us it's not where we evolved we're not suited to it biologically and to, to, to live in environments like like you know we experience every day where you hardly see a green thing and everything is gray and it's hard and it's non-organic is totally and utterly unnatural to our spirit and who we are and we kind of put up with it we kind of live with it and we see a wonderful green environment a beautiful park as being something different something to go to um and the kind of gray surroundings is just part of our normal everyday existence but but that is totally and utterly unnatural to us, and I think that that's part of why, you know, I feel on a mission in a way, like we all do, to try and bring back as much green, not just into our gardens and and parks, but into our streets and into our everyday lives. And the Greater Green Scheme in Sheffield is is a nice example of that. It's like I think it's a like, one and a half kilometres long. It was a former dual carriageway in a city ring road, half of which has been now turned over to gardens. You know, it's, you can walk. I think it takes about half an hour to walk from one end to the other, continuously through green and planting. There are cycleways through it and footpaths, as well as public transport and some cars. But it's not just green. It's diverse green. It's dynamic green. It looks good right the way through the year and. We've just done some survey work. I've had a student do it this past summer, looking at wild bees in the city on, along this greater green, diverse plantings on the highway, comparing it with the street ne- next door, which has no green in it at all, and also with the nearest bit of unmanaged grassland, sort of wildflower meadow that we could find, which is about 500 metres away. And the greater green scheme, diverse horticultural gardens, had more different wild bee species on it and more numbers of wild bee species on it. And this is alongside still quite a busy road in the middle of the city. And again, it just speaks to the power that we have, not just to make places that are good for people, but when we do work in a more sustainable way, it has all these other benefits that that almost start to flow automatically. And I think... um, while I'm on the topic, we we don't need to feel guilty as gardeners or as horticulturalists that because we're making gardens and often you know we're doing things far that are not totally natural, that therefore we're not doing anything good. And you know it's easy to, I think to feel guilty as a gardener that you're not really doing very much good. But really, I, there's so much research now that shows that if we can just work with diversity, work with these different layers not be so manicured in what we do, that gardens are hugely valuable for biodiversity as well as for other things. And um, the great thing about that is that there are millions and millions of them before you start to even think about parks and other spaces. And, you know, even small changes in the way we do things can start to make a really big difference. It's a really powerful thing that we have at our fingertips.
0: Well, it feels really powerful, certainly at this time, where you know we can blend what is what feels to be intrinsically right, that can now be supported with the research and the studies, um, so that it doesn't. It's not just one person's view. Um, you know, of course, you know if you as you mentioned, if you go back eons, we just did it. We just got on with how we work with the land, and and then you know, I think. Got too busy, as humans do, uh, creating things um, and and stop listening. But I think now we're at a time where we can really um, use all the research that's done. You know, like at Sheffield. Obviously, we know Sheffield is a centre of excellence for planting research and design, in certainly in urban areas. But one thing I did want to ask, actually, um, Nigel, coming back off the back of the research that you said about the um, the, the the bee species, for example, that and. It's about this native, non-native conversation. Now, I know it's a hot potato, certainly in the um, horticultural world and with designers, but for our listeners, using native plants or non-native plants, what what do you believe to be the best thing?
1: Well, I think as in much of life, um, taking very polarised views of one extreme to the other, often the truth lies in between. And so to say, to to be really ecological, you must only use native plants, um, or you must only use native plants of your locality, of your particular region, or you must only use native plants that might have, might have grown where you are before humans became involved in the landscape. Um, you know that that's not necessarily borne out by the facts. Um, I work a lot in urban situations um uh, but but similarly in gardens, you know we 're dealing with quite artificial environments, and just because a native plant might be particularly suited let 's say to the countryside near where you live doesn 't mean if you bring it into a town or a city it 's equally happy because the soils are often completely artificial or disturbed with the heat islands the urban heat island, you know temperatures are higher. Than in the surrounding countryside, so conditions are different. So simply saying we just need to bring the countryside into the city, let's say, doesn't necessarily um, hold up. I'm an ecologist. I'm a botanist. Actually, I started out studying plants, and you know, I, I have and like I think I said at the start, I was switched on to what I do now by by the sheer beauty of studying native plants in native plant communities but that doesn't mean to say that I believe that that's the only thing we should do. Um, the research from the work we've done at Sheffield, there's been, I think, one of the most exciting things that's happened recently in, in the world of gardens is the biodiversity audit that was done at Great Dixter a couple of years ago, where um, you know, many of people listening will know Great Dixter as you know one of the most famous gardens in the UK um the horticultural showpiece of crazy experimentalism, but very diverse and very traditional in some other ways. Connected to surrounding estate of meadows and ancient woodlands. And, you know, very intensively surveyed a couple of years ago across the estate, the meadows, the woodlands and the gardens. And the gardens turned out to be the biodiversity hotspot across the board, you know, for fungi, for spiders, for wasps, anything, name it the gardens came out top often, or no worse than the surrounding estate. And that's kind of an eye-opener, isn't it? And it's because of the diversity of plants in the gardens and diversity of conditions, and um, the the lack of the same everywhere. So that tells me something quite important. Um, All the research suggests that just being native is not the answer. It's just having that diversity of flowers and layers to provide as many opportunities as possible. Now this is a really tricky area to discuss and I've been embedded in this throughout my whole career and you know maybe 20 years ago people would actually throw things at you for saying something like that. It's coming back again actually. I'm finding that the extremities are coming to the fore again to the extent I think that it's impossible to win the argument through logic um because however much evidence you produce is a bit like some of these other things we know about um however much logic you kind of put forward it's a matter of belief to people and faith and so now we're getting to the to the point where okay it's been shown that you know mixed plantings are really beneficial um But now, you know, it has to be the specific ecotype of a plant growing in a particular area that has a particular DNA in its pollen that's the best for a particular insect. And if it's from somewhere else, that pollen is not quite so good. I I take a really pragmatic view about this, that if you want to, you can aim for absolute perfection and you'll never get there as in most of life, you'd always be looking further forward and the arguments will say, yes, but why don't you do that and why aren't you doing that? And it never, ever gets there. I think in gardens and landscapes, we should be going for what's good enough, what works, because everything we do is not just a single issue thing. It's not just about pollinators. It's about water. It's about air. It's about human emotion. So, all of these things have to come together in some sort of optimal way that's good for all of them, which may well mean that it's not absolute 100% perfect for every single one of them, but it's good enough. And it's good enough to achieve amazing things across the board. And that's what we should be aiming for, I think. So, I went off in a tangent there about this native, non native thing. I use native plants wherever I can. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, Wonderful heritage to them, but I do it for moral and ethical reasons in a way because that's makes a link to the place and to history and heritage. but some of the scientific reasons for using native plants, the research does not um, support that that this is the thing to do and you must do to achieve the best benefits so just to summarize all of that, I really dislike the approach that says you must do this, you mustn't do that, um, particularly when it comes down to gardens. I think we have to have rules and boundaries, but to say that everything on that side is good and everything on the other side is bad is not the best way of thinking about things because we need, as I said, to be working across the board to achieve benefits across the board, which means we need to be working for what's good enough for the purpose, not what is absolute kind of utopian perfection across the board. I know other people will disagree with that. You know, we should be aiming for perfection. But I think it's a losing battle because we're dealing with living systems and people. And, you know, it's very difficult to achieve absolute perfection in every single element of sustainability in the same place at the same time.
0: Well, as a Virgo, that's kind of music to my ear (laughs) because... being doing good enough um is sometimes what you know you're kind of like i'll just let me just and can i and you know and i think that's an important um an important message because gardening um is is like nature it's in flux and change all the time isn't it so yeah you 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 reach perfection and guess what the goalpost will move so i think that is really really important for us to to hear that um one other thing I just wanted to touch on, um, we, we kind of mentioned it earlier, Nigel, and that is about our changing climate. Um, we've got these extreme weather events that are happening. We're in drought one minute, we're in uh, flooding the next. And I just wondered in your experience, in your research, how adaptable or vulnerable um, do you think plants are at this time? I think it's a little bit linked perhaps to some of our previous discussions that um, we
1: have to think about change in a positive way and not look backwards to try and keep things as they are. And kind of on a bigger point, that's what a lot of gardening is about. I think, you know, a lot of typical garden maintenance is about keeping things looking the same, you know, clipping and pruning and weeding and whatever, you know, it looks the same from year to year or from month to month. In our changing environment, changing world, we have to become adaptable and work with that change. I think so. Plants and plant communities have adapted and evolved to changing climates continuously. You know, in the UK, you go back a thousand years to Roman times; it was warmer than it is now, and our plant communities changed. You know, we had an ice age that kind of just erased. All plants from the surface for a lot of our country, they will come back in again you know we're still almost chain you know still working through that process. So I think the way to think about it is that ecology is adaptable. It is resilient if we give it a chance. and to give it a chance, that means we support, but it means that we have to be connected. And by that I mean that if we think about gardens and plant communities and nature as a series of little individual elements that are isolated from everything else, then yes, that's going to be really difficult. But if we can connect things together, gardens with parks and green spaces and have a real continuity, then plants, insects, animals, birds can move and they can find the conditions that they're more adapted to, and other things can come in and take their place. So I actually, um, you know, part of me is very excited by, by this because there's a temptation, I think, in ecology to look at a plant community or a bit of nature and say, that's it, that's how it's always been, this is how it needs to be in the future. But all it is, is a snapshot at one particular point in time. And if you went back 200 years ago, it would have been different. You go 200 years in the future, it'll be different again. So we need to kind of embrace that change because otherwise we're not going to survive ourselves um, because change is happening. But we need to enable that that change to happen and we can be big, big agents in that change, if you see what I mean. So to answer your question, yes. Um, ecology ecosystems are are adaptable but because we've disrupted so much we have a big role in supporting enabling and helping and i think that's where the idea of gardening is so important to the rest of life actually because gardening is about nurturing it's about it's about creation it's about making something and helping it through, whether it's an individual plant or whether it's a whole garden. And this idea of nurturing and supporting and guiding, if you like, um, is a really important one for us into the future, I think. And that's again why why the idea of the garden and gardening, I think is not just about gardens. It's about a way of thinking in a way that, that we that we should shout about um, because it's such a useful thing i think to help us through the future
0: oh no that's that's so that's so wonderful to hear i love listening about not using i don't like using the maintenance word anymore i just i always care and development care and development plan and that maintenance keeps us stuck doesn't it it's a maintain um which is certainly not what we want to do um and certainly not low maintenance either but anyway that's another subject for another another time um look I'm conscious. I've, I've, I could sit here talking to you for hours, um, and and which is really fascinating. And I know a lot of what we've spoken about um, is in your latest book, um, Naturalistic Plant and Design: um, The Essential Guide. And you know, I know that there's, um, you know, you've, you've you've written many books, but this this has got some great practicality to it. So I just want to finish with a final point from yourself. What one change should we all be making now? in our approach to sustainable planting that's a big question (laughs) you know I always got to throw one in Nigel keep you on your toes (laughs)
1: um it's difficult to say one thing isn't it Um, And we kind of said it before I think diversity is the key thing and it's a bit philosophical but it's not just diversity in space of having you know a diversity of things filling your space but it's this diversity through time so that things change and we embrace that change. So I think it's um, letting go a little bit. And I think seeing the beauty in, in change and just just thinking differently about what's beautiful.
0: It has been brilliant talking with you, Nigel. Thank you so much for all of your time and sharing all your insights and research and personal personal um, view of the world. It's been brilliant. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you, Ari. Thanks a lot thanks for listening to me ara anderson on the bbc gardeners world magazine podcast you can find out more about the themes we've covered today at gardenersworld.com forward slash podcast if you enjoyed this episode please tell others about it Rate us in your podcast provider app and don't forget to subscribe on apple spotify or acast to never miss an episode see you next time